What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. It has been a long, long time since the last episode. This is episode 12 of the High Bar Podcast. I'm here, as always, with my uh, handsome, unofficial co-host, because I feel like most of the time it's it's me and Chance, uh, Chance Mitchell. And um, Chance, I I don't know if, if you're shadow banned for me, or if you've just taken like somewhat of, because a lot of people have been getting shadow banned. Like I'm getting messages about it all the time. I feel like I haven't seen too much posting from you lately. What's 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 going on here, man? Oh, so like actual posts or stories or what? Well, just in general, I feel like I haven't seen as much social media from you. And I don't know if that's been intentional or if like Zuckerberg is just hiding you from me. <laughs> Yeah, there's some people that I think that it's it's been that way for. Uh, for me, no. I mean, I've been kind of off social media for a little bit, just for uh, like the last few weeks up until the Arnold UK. Okay. Because uh, I got hurt, kind of like pulled off a little bit. I was trying to see if like, hey, am I still going to be able to make this work? And uh, it was just like too much. Um, so I kind of pulled back, kind of hid things on social media for a little bit. And then, mm-hmm. okay, well, like I admitted like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. Cool. We reset. And now like I've been back on it. How have you been feeling? good now man it's shitty because i think you know for you i'm sure it's be the same thing it's like when you have like this big meet coming up and people are very excited for you they they'll tell you like oh chance like i'm so excited for this blah 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 and then when you tell them like hey you know i'm not gonna be able to do this meet you know it is what it is we're moving on they're like oh chance i'm so sorry you're not gonna be able to do the arnold it's like dude just let's chill it's like it's not a big deal let's move on yeah totally fine and yeah, no the worst people- the worst that they try to like Make it like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's just like, I don't want to talk about this. Let's move on. Yep. When you get consoled after an injury or a loss, whatever it might be, when someone tries to like coddle you, even if they're not intentionally being patronizing, like they do genuinely care. It's like, just just pretend this didn't happen. Just like, yeah. let's move on from it. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to figure it out. It fucking sucks. I know. Like, don't keep reminding me. Like, we're just head down and moving forward with it. Yeah. What, um... What was it in particular? I think it was your back, right? Was was an issue? Yeah. So I had like a pop. It sounded like um, like it was a noticeably like loud pop, but it wasn't too painful. It was like the next few days was just restricting in like a very bottom position, like uh, bottom of the deadlift or squat. But squat, I usually can like suffer through it. Deadlift, mm-hmm. it's like a, a jolting sharp pain mm-hmm. that kind of like restricts you. And so at that point, I was like, I have to take a little bit of time off. When you're like four or five weeks out and you take one and a half, two weeks off of like serious deadlifts, it, it's going to be too much to come back in like three weeks and yep. have it be even remotely close. At the last like week and a half, two weeks out, I pulled 804 and it was rough, um, which is like, okay, that's not too bad. Like I can make that work in comp. Um, but then it was just still painful and still problematic for the last like, I don't know, week. Yeah. At that point, I was like, eh, I'm not going to do it. Um, it's funny because me, Penna, the 66 kilo French lifter, um, and it's wholly dropped out. Um, it was going to be like a really big meet. I mean, it was still a big meet for a lot of the UK lifters. Um, but, you know, all the other international people kind of like dropped off, at least on the men's side. The women's side looked great. Um, that flight was insane with Leah's comeback. Yeah. Um, I I love watching that like sphere of lifters like no- Noemi Alibert, uh Leah um tiff all of those people they're very very fun to watch yeah unfortunately i wasn't there in person so fair enough 
I mean, you had the meat of your life at you know Worlds and with the logistical year coming up for you IPF guys, it's just, as you know, totally not worth pushing through something like that for the Arnold. Um, yeah, man, I, going back to what you were talking about with like an injury that is like in that proximity to competition, I had the same thing going into, um, what was it, my February meet in 2021 and then nationals in 2021, where it's like, you know, you, you have to take the, that week, week and a half. It's like not even that much time in the grand scheme of things, but within the context of a prep is it's enough to totally detrain. Mm -hmm. And when I was squatting in flats at the time, it's like, I felt really strong, but I was not durable. Like that's eventually what had me switching back to heels because I would just keep getting like a soft tissue injury that just never came up when I squatted in heels. And it was like, four weeks out from the February meet that I did in 2021 and like three weeks out from nationals and both times it's like, well, I guess I'm squatting, you know, like 150 to 190 for like a week. And then it's just like, Oh, that's enough to just fuck up the whole peak. Like it's over. <laughs> and if it was like worlds or, you know, nationals where you don't really have a choice, then it's fine. Like I'll suffer through it and it'll be, you know, pretty miserable, but you know, I'll show up on game day, do what I got to do and then move on. Um, but for an elective meet like that, it just seemed like it wasn't worth, you know, worth the effort. Yeah. Um, and, and especially too, is like, you know, I think people forget how fast some of these things have come up. You know, I, it seems like just a little while ago, we were doing uh, USAPL nationals 2021 in uh, Florida. And then like all of a sudden, boom, you know, we're at powerful American nationals worlds. And now, you know, this long, long buildup for me, at least in this last year and a half, I've come up pretty fast in that year and a half. Um, it was bound to happen. <laughs> it's like you've pushed your luck far enough. And I'm glad, you know, to be like in a little bit of pain afterwards and get through that period. And then cool. Now I have plenty, you know, build up time for the next year's worlds. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I mean, it's as as much as we love to see just the rapid progress. It's, you know, something that you and I have talked about on this podcast when we were talking about gaining weight, that it's just like the tissue tolerance could just not be there after a long enough time scale when you've just had momentum for so long that, you know, not necessarily, you know, it doesn't always have to be a blessing in disguise, but at the same time, it's like, okay, now, you know, kind of what your, your limit is in terms of, you know, how long can I actually push and ride this wave for? Um, so I wanted to ask you with this next year of meets coming up, cause I, I don't know the full story and and pardon my ignorance here because i'm not gonna lie I, I can't remember the last time i even listened to a king of the lifts podcast um <laughs> and i'm sure there are plenty of people listening who haven't either mm. i only know fractions of what the whole pla nats sheffield world's story is in terms of like having to qualify for which meets and what totals you need and you know breaking records all that sort of stuff just it sounds like you guys are in this position to have to strategize and then maybe like one of the three meets, if not two of the three meets end up suffering in terms of like what you can get out of them from a top end performance. Yeah. So are you more saying like, Hey, um, you know, I don't really know the, the Yeah. What the fuck's going on, man. I don't know anything. Cause it is a little confusing, right? Like the, the totals that were put up look like really high for most people. They're like, Oh, what are these specific totals for? Like this, this seems a little ridiculous when, some yep. lifters didn't even make those totals. You know, a lot of the totals that 
um, people hit at nationals, powerlifting American nationals, were not matched um, to the, that new QT. So a lot of people that won nationals would not have gotten an automatic spot for next year's Worlds. Um, the reason, I mean, I'm sure you understand, the, you know, the reason is a little bit of a safety net for the Sheffield lifters that are also competing, um, you know, a couple of weeks after. This allows the top lifters that have already won Worlds, you know, a little bit more of a priority in a sense. Um, the, the idea here is if you're good enough to win Powerlifting American Nationals and you hit this total, cool, you're automatically on the team. You're that you're obviously that high level lifter. You're going to be able to make the team. Cool. No other discussion. Now, if you're not good enough to hit those totals, that essentially means you're probably not going to win first, second, third at Worlds in the next year. Um, or, or maybe you would be third or something. Um, this gives everybody else that opportunity to either do Powerlifting American Nationals as well, win head to head or just focus on Sheffield and have that uh, total count. Gotcha. Okay. No, that makes sense. So what I'm gathering from it, I mean, pretty much what you said is just like for you guys who won, like you guys are the the priority and they're trying to protect you guys. Yeah. Cause otherwise, you know, someone originally the criteria was, Hey, you just win nationals and you have a, a lot lower Carpino. Uh, you automatically get the spot and a discussion. Now for someone like Amanda who, um, you know, there's no one close in that weight class in Powerlifting America right now. If she didn't do nationals, she would lose that spot to somebody that maybe totals 80 kilos less, essentially, right? Yeah. That's nice. what it was meant for, essentially. So the gotcha. same thing for me or Kaiko or any other 93, right? Um, if you don't hit that 868, I think is the total, uh, then we will probably take that spot. So I think it actually works up well for me because my good lift points and my obviously total is high enough that I will probably be able to get in as an alternate um, ahead of somebody else that wins their weight class, but doesn't hit those totals. Um, Cause as far as we know uh, last year, uh, me, me Kaiko and Jesus were the only ones that hit the qualifying total. So Atwood didn't hit the qualifying total, obviously because he was injured and some other stuff. Um, uh, Michael Davis didn't hit it. Enrique didn't hit it. Um, Eric Kupperstein didn't hit it in the 59s and the 66s, Jonathan Garcia didn't hit it. So there's a lot of people that Jeez. didn't hit that, that total. <laughs> yeah. So all of those people, if that the same thing happened this next year, would not get an automatic spot, which means myself, any other Sheffield lifter would take that alternate spot. Got you. You can see how beneficial that is for me. Does so I, my question is with this is SPD like unilaterally just deciding like, how does it, who here's my question. So like the IPF is obviously the, the, the parent organization to powerlifting America and all the other federations. And then SPD is a sponsor, but then is also hosting Sheffield. Like who at SPD is in communication with like legislating these qualifying totals and all that sort of stuff. Like how is, how does all of this get decided? I have the, the qualifying totals for worlds. Are you talking about now Sheffield for Sheffield Sheffield selections? Okay. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, it's legitimately, Hey, we, we want to use this criteria. Cool. We set this criteria. There's the wild card spots. Um, do you know how the wild card spots worked or like how people automatically qualified? No. So some, some lifters. <laughs> so like in uh, the 93s, there was a, a 93 that qualified from Algeria, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Super natty, of course. <laughs> so he he no comment he um he won right like he he won and got that spot uh, but he was like i think sixth in the 
the open at 93s so okay or something like that maybe eight um but he got it because he was part of a region that was already un underrepresented so SBD selects lifters that hit this criteria as a wild card spot to automatically go um so like Tim Monagati was an example of someone that would have qualified automatically at, at Worlds had he just hit that total. Mm. He didn't. He didn't actually need to win or do anything else except hit that minif minimum. Uh, I think it's like ninety percent of the world record total. Okay, uh, and he would get an automatic spot. So the same thing with uh, Kyoto Ishiyama from Japan. Uh, the six-six kill, he got second, um, and he hit that total. And there's no other person in that um, region essentially that would have automatically got it so he, he got that spot in the 66s um so there's other al alternate spots as well the wild card spots that are up to spd's discretion okay okay that makes sense it doesn't sound as outrageous as i originally thought usually that's the case when you fill in the blanks and context <laughs> it sounds less ridiculous um yeah, no, I've been, I feel like I've been like a terrible uh, fan of the sport since the IPF kicked the USAPL out because once they were kicked and then I made the decision like, oh yeah, no, I'm never, I'm never going back. I feel like mentally I just kind of like cut off that entire section of powerlifting from my brain. And now like, unless it really just like bores, a, you know, uh, permeates its way into my feed, I really have no idea what's going on on That's that fair. side of Power of, of course, except for when I was watching you compete at Worlds. That's the only exception. <laughs> well, I think it's the same thing for me as well. It's like hard to keep track of the top USAPL lifters. Um, there's there's some that I already knew, right? Like grandfathered in essentially because I, mm -hmm. I, you know, we're already friends with them or whatever. Um, but yeah, the new upcoming USAPL lifters. If I don't see them at like some specific meet, I don't really know. Um, it's interesting now. Now that you say that, it's like there was already a, a a very big split between the untested side and the tested side mm -hmm. now there's a split again with the tested side um just from that alone i i do like seeing the other usapl countries like uh korea and <laughs> it's so ridiculous to say yeah yeah i mean it's it's legit now i mean like straight up like i saw the, the meet that charles did in australia i yep. saw the the korea meet um, that Korean meet looked pretty good, by the way. The, dude, uh, the one ten that went head to head with Ashton. Dude, I, <laughs> I, I was talking with uh, Johnny in our group chat today. He was like, "I feel like if South he 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 was saying, I feel like if South Korea took over the USAPL, it would just be like million pl million plus views on like every video. You'd have a meet coming up, and it'd be like, all right, so we have uh, Russell Orhi and and Logan Paul gonna be at the same meet together. Just like they're gonna somehow blow it up." Cause that, that streamer, I don't even know who it, who the guy is, but that video of Ashton against, um, Oh, I feel like such a piece of shit. I forget his fucking name now. Uh, I'll just call him his Instagram name. It is his Instagram name. Keenan, Keenan Lee. There we go. Keenan Lee. His Instagram name, a random Korean dude. Cause someone, Oh, it was, uh, was it lifting vault? That was just like a random Korean dude almost beats Ashton Ruska. Um, but whoever the streamer was that posted their meat recap, that video has like, what, over a million views now or something ridiculous? It's it's crazy how like, and, and this is kind of one of the things that I think is an advantage for, for some of these countries where it's like, culturally, they're so unified that like whatever the event is, everyone's just all about it. You know, it's just like it could be lifting and I don't have any fucking idea what's going on in lifting. But like, all right, like this dude's hosting a stream for it. I'm going to fucking watch it. But like in the U.S., we're so all over the fucking place that just wouldn't happen unless it was like some, I don't know, really famous dude. But 
at any rate, um, topic I wanted to discuss today, because you said when I brought this up to you, I was like, oh, we'll talk about this. I'm thinking we're going to be on the same page. I'm glad that we're not. Well, maybe we are in some ways. But one thing that I think is really interesting, and this has always been the case with powerlifting, is the pendulum is always swinging. And I would say circa 2014 is probably when we started to see like the hyper specificity DUP model of training really take off. Um, and the, the stereotypical examples that I look to are like the lifters who trained under, you know, Ben Escrow circa 2015, 2016, uh, just doing crazy SBD volume. You know, I think at one point Lane had like two a days, like just ridiculous shit. And now I feel like there's been a pendulum swing back the other direction, kind of toward the more moderate outlook on frequency, moderate outlook on volume. And uh, in my mind, in some cases, at least an over prioritization of accessories and maybe an overestimation of their transference to the competition movements. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a lot of carryover that some people can get. And I kind of wanted to use this part of the episode to like talk about in what circumstances we believe these movements to really get, you know, provide a lot of bang for their buck. But I feel like now we're shifting in the opposite direction and people in some circumstances might just not be doing enough of, of the comp work. I'm curious what you're, because I brought this up as being, you know, my point of view to kind of lay it all out there is that I still very much feel that the dosage and the pace of progression for the comp movements really is the big rock. And that's where most of the progress lies. Um, but you said, and now you have a chance to defend yourself. You said that you have somewhat of a disagreement with that. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say, especially given that you've been Mr. Volume for your career. So uh, I guess, you know, kind of going off of that, I, I think that as you advance as a lifter, there's a point where pushing very hard on accessory work starts to um, get diminishing returns significantly. And I think the more that you like prioritize a specific like accessory movement, it starts to uh, have or lose its like extra stimulus boost that you get. Um, I've seen, and I've seen this more, more recently, I think it's getting worse and worse each year. I think we talk about something around this is, the fact that like college kids or like newer teenage kids get into powerlifting from TikTok or Instagram, whatever, and they're very focused on powerlifting and they kind of neglect all the bodybuilding work. Yep. Um, they, they get really specific with learning how to bench in the most efficient way, you know, maximizing their arch or, you know, either going super, super wide on a squat or deadlift to try to maximize um, their efficiency for, for the cycle of black, for the lack of a better term. I think, that it seems very common for this to happen and people end up getting hurt when they probably shouldn't be trying to get hurt with, you know, maybe working in 300s for, for reps on squat and they're grinding out, you know, four sets of seven or whatever, whatever movement. Right. And they're kind of hitting this wall repeatedly over and over again, they're getting injured, they're getting tweaks and they keep moving, you know, back two steps, um, you know, and ultimately they probably should have just spent more time building, you know, uh, with like bodybuilding work and yep. really focusing on that earlier on. Now we're getting into that opposite range here. I think where the higher advanced level lifters are doing a lot of tons of accessory work, thinking that it has a lot of carryover when it doesn't. Yep. So that's kind of where my, my view is here. I, I think 
you know, there's some movements, right? Like I'll be the first one to say that like I, I championed the hyper extensions hard. And I think they have a good place, but I think some people like kind of missing the point on it a little bit. Cause I've seen, you know, I'm sure you've seen that when I, like I, I posted about them, people would also post them doing it and they would tag me and I would share them. And then some of them are trying to like match me or like pass me on them or do them with even significantly more weight than I do. And it's like, dude, like maybe it's worth you doing that, but maybe not, you know, maybe it's not worth um, us pushing this hard on it or missing range of motion or kind of having interfere with comp deadlift work. Yep. Um, and they, again, kind of over-prioritize that. Yep. So it's like kind of missing the boat there. Yeah. That's, that's no. my view. Dude, I get I get tagged and I get sent the most disgusting looking hyperextensions I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. Like you you really are correct in that. And I, and I didn't see this as much when I was growing up. Like I feel like an old man now saying this, you know, being 26 years old now. But I didn't see this as much where young kids are just like horrendously not aware of like their position or their, or like what their body is doing on like very simple bodybuilding exercises. And I think it's because they like very quickly jump into like the, all the powerlifting shit where it's like, I've watched somebody and they, they, they have that whole SBD sleeve belt fucking camera set up. And it's like, they don't know how to do a fucking lateral raise. And it's like, you know, the, it all boils down to, like understanding what your bottlenecks for progress are at any given point in time. Um, and before I get into that, one of the things I wanted to comment on, cause you're saying like people like tag you and they like try to match you and like pass you with these hyper extensions. It's like, how do they not ask themselves? It's like, all right, chance deadlifts well over 800 pounds. I am nowhere near that. So if I'm out hyper extensioning him or matching him, how much carryover do I really think this exercise is going to have for me? Like if I'm pushing it past the point where chance is at with it and my deadlift is just like way down in the shitter compared to where chances is, it's like, where do you think that you're missing out on right now? Is it on your fucking hyper extensions or is it on the fact that you're not <laughs> spending your time doing deadlifts as efficiently as you possibly can be? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, I get, I get tagged in, in that shit all the time. And it's like, some people will just share it and like, you know, be like, oh, like it'll put like a fire emoji or like with a salute emoji. And mentally, I'm just like, I'm not I'm not sharing this. You look like garbage. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no way I'm putting this on my story. Um, but yeah, dude, I mean, all of it, like I've said, all of it really boils down to what your bottlenecks are at any given point in time. And like you said, and we've talked about this before, it's like with younger lifters, you know, if you look at the, and this is something that I talked about in the seminar that we did in Texas, which we haven't even been on this podcast to discuss how the seminar went. So we'll get to that in a bit. But when I was talking about how you write an intro block for a lifter, right? Cause like the first process before you even start writing anything is starting to accumulate their old training data, learn more about them and essentially form this like athlete profile for the lifter. It's like, you're looking at all the individual characteristics that could potentially play a role in these programming decisions, their training age, how much muscle they have, gender, weight class, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think of it kind of like when you have a video game and you have all your stats and sliders and you see like how filled out something is. And it's when you have like this newer lifter, it's like, you know, sure, the the neurological efficiency for a, um, you know, for a competition movement is maybe super low, but like, so is hypertrophy. So is like the ability to actually recruit as many muscle fibers as possible, like literally the ability to, to grind and produce maximal amount of force, like totally independent of whether or not 
your bench arch is maximized or whatever. It's like, you literally don't know how to like produce as much force as possible. Um, and the worst part, and I think the problem that a lot of young kids run into is that you almost won't know if you're doing too much or like you're cornering yourself or, or run, running into a wall too early, because when you're that new, even if you are overworking, you're still going to make progress, right? So it's like, if you're at this, if there's like this critical point of 10 sets, let's say a week of legs, I'm just making up a, an arbitrary measure here, but it's like, if this is your critical, if this is your critical value and you're pushing 50 to hundred percent past that, it's like, you're new enough that you're still going to progress. It's not going to be enough stress on your body that you're going to feel like garbage immediately as it would be if like me or you you know, double their squat volume. So it's like, you never know just how excessive you're being and you could continuously just train through it, maybe not even feel it. And you're like, all right, well, I'm doing the best possible thing for me. And then you end up, you know, either getting hurt way down the road, you, you know, waste this sensitive time of training where obviously, you know, adaptation comes really quickly and you could have been focusing on building this baseline and expanding the size of your bucket is an analogy that I've heard used before. Um, and then you're just, you know, you're shit out of luck in terms of, you know, what size bucket you're working with, you know, a year or two years down the road and you never would have had any idea. Yeah. I, I always like to think about this because I, when I started powerlifting, um, I really didn't like, this was 2013. So a lot of like raw powerlifting wasn't common. Like most people didn't do that in commercial gyms. Most people had no idea. You know, I just did push pull legs off, push pull legs off for like two and a half years of right before I got into powerlifting, mm -hmm. you know, and when you're doing that, like you can get really strong and get really good at your movement, like just quality of movement and your like body spatial awareness um, gets a lot better than where you were before. And especially if you weren't like an athlete growing up, um, you don't have good dexterity. You don't have good control of your, your body yet. You definitely need to get that. And it's better to do it outside of crushing yourself on like a barbell movement. It's better to do it with like cables, machines earlier on. And yeah. a lot of people skip that. The good power lifters now are the people that have been doing some sort of like bodybuilding type stuff for a long period of time. Then they started powerlifting. Then they started gradually like optimizing things. And I think that's almost everybody that I can think of started that way. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, it kind of gets to this point where like, you've built that base. And then, you know, as you make your way through your powerlifting career, you kind of try to cover all your bases. So you might be including stuff that could be exhaustive, but then as you start chipping away, fatigue maybe becomes more apparent performance starts to slow down. It's like you, you kind of decide like, all right, where do we trim the fat? And then you eventually converge upon this, this system where, you know, for somebody it's like, oh yeah, I don't do legs anymore besides squat. And then for some people it's like, oh, I need to do legs, you know, besides squat. Cause I can't recover from all the squatting. And it's like, you, you, you systematically just like trim and, and refine until it's this, you know, more moderate looking approach, I would say. But yeah, I mean, when I, when I started lifting, it was for baseball, but when I got into lifting, I remember there was like a very kind of defined faction in the gym, like amongst kids, my age, where it was like, there were the kids who were all about bodybuilding, where it was like the very typical train each body part one day a week. Like, I don't know if it was like this when you were coming into it, but like, I remember it was just like, all right, chest and tries one day, back and buys the other day, legs, shoulders, and traps the other day. Um, but then there was the, the faction of people who wanted to get 
strong on the barbell movements, but organized powerlifting was not, nobody was competing, right? But it was just like, I want to be a good squat bencher and deadlifter because those are the most important movements for foundational strength and blah, blah, blah. But the structure of training, like I remember one of the guys who got me into like heavy lifting, his name was Justin Gray, big ass dude. He was like six, probably like six, three, six, four, but like beefed up. Uh, I played lacrosse. He was like probably like 240. Um, and he was running Lane's uh, fat program, which like for a beginner to an intermediate is not really a bad thing to do because the structure of it, I don't know if you ever ran it or have ever looked at it, but it was like you do your powerlifting movement for the day. One of those days was going to be a hypertrophy day for the powerlifting movement. So it could have been like eights on squat or whatever. And then you just had like a leg focused session afterward. It could have been like, you know, hamstring focus where you're doing RDLs and you're doing hyper extensions and you're doing hamstring curls. And then the second day was like, oh, this is my strength squat day where I'm doing like five heavy triples. And then afterward I'm doing, you know, heavy leg press or heavy hack squat or whatever. And like, that was the, that was the dichotomy in the gym. It was like, you're either a bodybuilder doing this like one day a week, just like all machine shit, uh, cable flies, you know, you name it. Right. And then the other faction was like, you're, you want to get strong, but like everything was followed up with this bodybuilding stuff and even sometimes excessive amounts of bodybuilding stuff. And now it's, you know, oh my God, like the gym that I train at down here. So we have two gyms that I train at there's Ghost and there's paradise. And I love paradise for its environment. Cause it's like tall ceilings, a ton of turf, huge gym, very distinct separation of rooms for like powerlifting and bodybuilding. But now I don't know if it's cause what is it? It's October, you know, kids are back in school at the exact time that I usually train. Like the powerlifting side has turned into like a daycare. It's just like every young kid shows up with a camera. Like there are kids in there who are like 14, 15 camera, whole SBD kit. Um, you know, you have, there's four combos and like you have four different kids squatting the same weight on four different racks, taking like 15 to 20 minutes rest between each set. It's just like, I, that's why I've been going to ghost more often lately. It's like, I just, I can't train there anymore. Yeah. It's horrible. Well, that's what I was telling you about absolute recomp, the, the gym I train at uh, North Texas. It, it's gotten way worse, man. Like it is a TikTok gym. Like everybody is either on it on TikTok with, shit ton of followers posting whatever um like posing stuff which is cool um and then it's like the body or the powerlifters as well you know the same demographic mm -hmm. teenage younger kids that are you know doing very specific powerlifting stuff but just you know 10 racks and they're all squatting but on different different racks with the same amount of weight um, yeah and it's it's rough like the how far we've changed in like six seven years for how like accessible powerlifting is and now kind of where it's it's so mainstream that every teenager, like if you're lifting is like, has at least like knows about powerlifting, which is cool. But then also at the same time, it's, it's this now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like every kid, like they'll, they, and I'm not against it. Right. But it's like every kid wants to try their hand in it. So like now, cause I remember seeing at, you know, the gym that I go to at paradise, you know, a lot of the kids who like kind of wanted to dabble in powerlifting, they'd still lift on the bodybuilding side, but now it's just like, 
I see these combo racks on TikToks. I see these kilo plates on TikTok. So it's like, I'm going to go train on the powerlifting side. And I'm just like, oh, dude, please. Like, you don't need a combo to squat a blue. Like, please just, right. <laughs> just go somewhere else. We, we still need to see kind of what the effects of this is. Like in, in another 10 years or like, are these lifters going to be like done? Are they going to be, you know, the top level lifters after this? You know, who's to say if it's actually like a good investment? From what I see, it looks like a bad investment when they're that focused on the powerlifting side. Yeah, I mean, well, I well, I think what's going to happen is that you expose it to enough people that, you know, the talent pool exposed to powerlifting is higher and then you're going to get some freaks come out of it. But of the, you know, if you think about what powerlifting was a few years ago, if your pool was, you know, 100 serious people, the retention rates maybe, I don't know, 50%, 70%, whatever it is. But now that the pool is like a thousand people and and the majority are just less interested, it's, you, you know, of course, you're going to see most of these kids fall off or get hurt or just, you know, not give a shit. Um, so yeah, um, fuck, what was I just going to say? Oh my God. Oh, so with, I've been meaning, I've been meaning to come back to, uh, to Dallas because the last time I was there, I was there for the meet that I did. What was it this past January? Um, but I am in like an interesting, and I, and I think about this all the time. I'm just like, I could literally go wherever I want, whenever I want right now. And I'm just like, why am I not, why am I not doing this? <laughs> like I, uh, like I went on my first vacation of my adult life, uh, in July. And then now I'm just like, I've been meaning to come back to Dallas and I'm like, well, I could, I could do it any weekend I want. Why am I not doing this? But I definitely want to make a trip down there. Definitely want to train with you train with everybody who's down there. I mean, it's, you know, you know, there's so many people in the, in every part of Texas that, that power lift, but I feel like I haven't seen so many people in such a long time, like since nationals for whatever reason feels like an eternity. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff to do. I think when you were in Dallas, you didn't do uh, like six flags or anything like that. Like some of the Texas stuff, like the actual Texas stuff. Is six flags considered like that's the original. Texas yeah, stuff? That's, yeah. 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 Six for flags real? over Texas is the original, the biggest one ever. Yeah, of course. Wow, this is complete like, news to me. For whatever reason, I thought that the Six Flags that's in like fucking Pennsylvania or New Jersey or whatever, I thought that, that was the original Six Flags. No, it's Six Flags over Texas. Wow. You just you just blew my mind. I had no idea. Yeah, isn't it like the like like the Six Flags of Texas is I'm trying to look this up without sounding stupid. <laughs> hey Jamie, isn't pull it, it up. Right, right, right. Isn't <laughs> it um who like oh not owned, but something about like who actually was in charge of texas or something why, why do they call six flags over texas oh yeah yeah um the six flags of texas origins uh spain france mexico republic of texas confederate states of, of america and then the usa no fucking shit i had no idea well yeah no when i was down there um i trained i water cut or whatever i was doing like i did nothing i didn't get to experience uh dallas at all and like it's unfortunate too, because like, I really, what I've seen of Dallas, I actually really like. Um, Cause like the only time that I've spent any considerable time in Texas or like have made my days more densely packed while in Texas have been in Houston. And I'm just like, yeah, it's like, I don't, I'm not about it. You're, you're giving me those eyes. You're like, Oh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. I definitely am not a, uh, not a Houston person by any means. I think they just deal with a lot of homeless and there's a lot of, 
rundown spots in Houston. In Austin too, man. Austin too, yeah. Like literally the I get off my flight. This was for a meet that I was coaching at last summer in Austin. I get off my flight. I get out of my Uber to, at the hotel. And as I'm walking into the hotel, like this homeless guy just like is like trying to press me for for something. And I'm just like, what is what is happening? And when I went to when I went to the uh, Alico headquarters, one of the guys who I was speaking to, I won't I won't name names, but he was like, he's like, you got to be careful around here. He's like, He's like, I wouldn't want to be here. <laughs> it's... Dude, even in Austin, I don't even know if I told you this, but at Power Three American Nationals, uh, there's like two hotels, the Me Hotel and then one of the hotels that I stayed at um, right next door. You know, I was moving my stuff out from the hotel room and there's this like homeless dude dragging this giant like branch, like lot, like super big log type of branch setup thing. And he's like dragging it, like going around to everybody's car. Then he walks in front of like the, the front desk screaming at the people in the front desk area like coming back like walking around people's cars gonna like hit the cars and shit there's there's just random people like that like all over the place austin's bad i think houston's bad there's parts of like like north dallas ish that's not great i mean there's obviously the actual bigger cities like that are always going to be something you know yeah. similar um but right outside of dallas you have everything nice you have north richmond hills you have keller roanoke honestly like people should move out here i mean this is like the really nice time to to move yeah um all all of those like sub suburban types of places dude the worst so i lived in dc for a year and dc has like one of the biggest homeless populations i had a terrifying i don't think i've ever told you this story i had a terrifying experience with a homeless person in dc and I thought I legitimately thought that I was at the very best going to get into a fight with this guy and at the very worst, like get fucking stabbed or something. Um, DC's pop homeless population is massive. And when I would train in DC, I would go to this gym called Balance Gym in uh, DuPont Circle, I think. Yeah. And I would get off at that train stop and... I was crossing the street and there was like a homeless guy, like very slowly kind of trotting across the, you know, across the street when he had the traffic signal and I was in a hurry. So I kind of like come around him and I guess I startled him. And as I'm walking, he's just like chirping in my ear. Like I hear him behind me and he's just like, what gang you in? And he's just like, He's calling me like, uh, I won't say it on here, but he's calling me, uh, <laughs> he's calling me quite a few ethnic slurs. Uh -huh. And um, I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to ignore this guy, right? Because I'm like, this, this guy's insane. You know, I'm just going to keep walking. And I'm thinking that as I'm walking at this pace and he was walking at his pace, that we're eventually going to separate by enough distance that he's going to give up. But he's questioning me for not responding to him. And eventually, and that's the thing. It's like when you live in these cities, like people just pretend stuff's not happening. So like I can very clearly see that people are looking at this situation out of the corner of their eyes, like what the fuck is going on? But people just go about their day. And at one point in walking, I just hear him go, you know what? Fuck this, man. And then his footsteps just get faster and I feel him getting closer and we're in the middle of the street. So like I'm already crossing now another crosswalk and he circles around me and just squares up right in front of me. And he's like, let's go. And then he looks up. He looks down at my legs because I was like wearing a pair of like short shorts like I was going to train that day. And he just he looks down at my legs. He goes, 
nah, man, you look like you do MMA or some shit. I'm out. And then he just turns around and <laughs> takes off as if no altercation had happened. But when I heard him say, nah, fuck this, like, let's go. Oh, I shit. just felt just like shit in my stomach, just pool. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die right now. Like, I'm going to get a disease. I'm going to get stabbed. I don't know what the fuck's going to happen, but I know none of these colored hair people around us in DC are going to do anything to help me in this situation. <laughs> so... Was was the guy black? Yes. <laughs> God damn not it. not that uh that was a relevant uh piece of information, but yes. <laughs> you said the colored hair people, so you're saying that like I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Well, that's like that's the demographic of DC, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you have he has he has nothing to lose. You have everything to lose, but yet you were the one that looked like you could fight somehow with your short shorts. Yeah. No. <laughs> wasn't gonna happen he, he i was i don't know what that what he was gonna do but i was not uh i was not prepared um i have a question for you because this is a topic that we were going to talk about um because when you were at worlds and I, and I think we mentioned this when we did our post worlds podcast you took a like more advantage of the 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 city and the environment and like just enjoyed your days more than I have seen of the typical Chance Mitchell and more than you would expect to see of the typical Sean Noriega as people know us. Do you have any trip plans or vacation plans aside from meets on your uh, on your docket at all? Are there any places that you want to see? um so as of now like the next next year is malta for sure um i mean assuming for sure i can't (laughs) but we'll we'll say we'll say malta next year like i'm the fucking man and we're going to malta but i can't say that yet (laughs) um which is going to be really cool like it's south of italy um i know that's your spot so uh try to make the most of that yeah Uh, i heard it's super 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 small but it's very 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 nice um and I think this is like the first time it's been at like a really, really nice location. Um, having worlds be not at like Belarus or South Africa or some random other place. Um, yeah. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I think the London trip or to Sheffield is going to be cool. So I think we have to be there for like a week before world or before Sheffield, do like yep. media stuff. Um, I'll try to stay out there a little <clears> bit <throat> earlier than that. Uh, train with some people and hang out. Um, I missed the London trip, obviously. Yeah. Um, for for the Arnold, so that would have been fun. Uh, but then the next thing is uh, back to Dubai. So that would oh. be fun. Um, what are you? Are you allowed to say what you're doing in Dubai? Uh, yeah. I mean, just as of now, I'm coaching. Okay. Um, but there's a bunch of other stuff that. I'll Got do. you. So, um, yeah, should have like four-ish people, five-ish people doing that. Oh no, shit. Um, Asian Championships. Um, this year is the biggest IPF meet ever, I think um really like in terms of the actual amount of competitors if we look at like good lift in the nominations uh, i think there's like 600 ish people already signed up and for an ipf meet that's a lot of people um for one meet <clears throat> it's interesting to me that like no actually i won't never mind that, that's not worth mentioning um do you know like how did they decide on malta for worlds because it's like it's a small part of italy like, it's like, you know, first of all, <clears throat> the set of countries that usually get chosen are obviously, you know, kind of countries that are, are 
you know, well-established with the IPF or, you know, Gaston know somebody or whatever, like the Belarus, you know, Belarus being selected multiple times as a result of that. I forget the guy's name, but is like, you know, a, a well-connected guy within the IPF. And obviously Italy's, you know, IPF affiliate is kind of, you know, newer and more rapidly growing. And then Malta is obviously an island off of Italy. Do you know how that selection yeah i'll be honest i have no idea i'm sure it's similar to how like uh like meets for nationals were selected it's you know x people bid on it these meet directors bid on it and then that's how it happens Mm. i I really don't know too much outside of that i looked at 24 2024 2025 where world's supposed to be and it'll tell like the location ish um like the actual country or whatever and then it says bid pending or something so Mm. i I really don't have any other, other idea outside of that got you okay Fair but enough. the other, so like the the other meets, um, so I'm sure you know already, but people that aren't in the IPF or have never experienced IPF, um, each area of the world is in a different region. So like um, USA, all the North Americas is an actual IPF affiliate. So the NAPF is an affiliate essentially of, of IPF. There's like the EPF, which is the European uh, nations. All of those countries are part of the EPF. There's the APF, which is all the Asian countries um, are part of the APF and they have a championships each year. Um, usually it's within like a rotation of X amount of different countries. Yeah. And then it's the bid as well. So like this year it's in Dubai, which is very cool. Um, you know, I forget like the Middle East, you know, it's still the East. Um, it's still the Asian countries. Yeah. Uh, but that meet is stacked. There's so many people doing this meet. It's, it's huge. And I'm sure um, so many people are excited to go to Dubai. Yeah, and that's another thing. Just like versus like some so random, much shit to do. Some random, maybe not the the richest like country, you know, in terms of you know where it is in Asia. Yeah, um, that is whatever Asian championships meet may not be as desirable, but Dubai is very desirable. So um, that's going to be very very fun. I'll, I'll be there for ten-ish days, I think. Oh man, um, yeah, it'll be fun. I I always feel like because you know I've seen especially with just because of who I, I've known over the years in the powerlifting community, like the the EPF and all of those meets are like super well attended and like very hyped up. And I feel like, I don't know if it's a, a logistical thing that led to this, but like then APF is like nothing was nothing. nothing. It was just so nobody in the USAPL wanted to do the meets. It always felt like it was just like thrown in at like an inconvenient time of the year that like nobody felt like they could even like prepare for it adequately and then still do nationals it just felt like a ball was dropped because you know you could have huge meets with you know granted like a lot of the latin american countries don't have like a huge establishment and now they kind of are but like at least with you know with canada right it's like you could have hosted a, a very stacked roster of, of lifters and made it a very big meet, but I feel like every year NAPF is just like, yeah, whatever. What I would have loved to see is like a USA versus the world meet, something like that, or, you know, USA versus EPF and oh. then it's the top lifters from each and they go head to head at whatever, you know, spot. That would have been really cool, but you're, you're right. Like then APF never was a thing because the only other lifters really were like very, very small, um, like, most people don't know them at the time. Like Rondell Hunt was the actual biggest name outside of the USA. That was in the NAPF that came up through that. And then people figured out who he was uh, when he started breaking junior world records and all that type of thing. But yeah. um, 
North North Americans is really just USA, Canada, Mexico, other countries south, right? Like there's not too much else. All the top level lifters are in the USA. So why at that point would you spend X amount of money to do an IPF meet to break records at, you know, Canada? Like yeah. most people aren't going to do that. No. Um, so it's just the region and it's just this, you know, North America is just that region and there's nothing else. We already compete domestically. We already are one place. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, that idea that you've mentioned, I feel like that could be done at some point, like USA versus Europe or like Europe versus eight. Like, I feel like that would be really, really sick. But um, I think then it, it admits that USA is like, we're we're pretty cool. We're pretty up there, right? Like they yeah. have to accept that as an L, like that the whole world versus USA would be a real thing. But you, but you could still do it as like a, you know, you could still have like regional meets as times of the year. Like it doesn't have to be US versus everybody. Mm-hmm. Um and like, like you said, you know, you being more on the IPF side, like, you know, like a lot of the French lifters are like fucking coming up, especially on the women's side. It's like they're dominating. Right. So like you'd meet your match, you know, it would, I feel like that would be super entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely could be done. They, they still have that option. It's not as like strict Nazi Germany as people think with IPF. I think yeah. it's, it's a lot. There's a lot more that can be done. The Sheffield thing is, is very exciting. And I think. People are going to see that and be like, damn, some people are going to be like, I missed out. You know, Maybe not you. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't feel that way. But there are definitely a lot <laughs> of people that are going to be like, this is wild. The the so SPD flew out to do uh, like photo shoot, video shoot stuff and get like uh, material to like post over the next X months and all that kind of stuff um, of like really hype like video documentary type stuff mm. um they're doing like a whole esports thing like very very cool stuff coming up so i'm e-sports. very excited about that that's going to be the most insane media coverage that people have ever seen yeah i mean that's that's something that i've always felt like was going to be a big separator and and is you know on the on the media side of how usapl does things with within like the federation level like i said i've kind of felt like they stood above the IPF, but with, with Sheffield and SBD being kind of their own private thing, having the ability to document stuff like that. I think the stories really make everything so much more interesting. I mean, that's like, that's why West side was on fucking ESPN. It's like, they have the the wherewithal and the, you know, almost, I, I would call it like delusion to believe that they're as cool as they are, you know, but like it's, they, they made the, they put stories behind the entire culture, the brand, the lifters, um so i've you know i'm very excited to see what that what that looks like i know that you know like for somebody like you know jesus who is like you know potentially going to be i don't know the first 1100 pound squad or whatever story you can craft around it it's like you can really turn that into like a really really cool documentary mm-hmm. you're yeah. like oh it's already being done i already saw it all it's it, i mean it, it honestly is man like they they were interviewing me for like few hours doing like all these different like discussion points to cover with all these different cameras set up and everything else it's gonna be very cool did justin nut come to yeah. see you? dude yeah. i love justin if he's if he's uh if he's listening to this justin's a man he's and he and i'm i'm so happy that he's in this position now because i remember when he was a little bit younger and he was i can't remember who he was originally shooting for before getting picked up by spd but um No, it's just cool. It's cool to see people that you like kind of come up with in the sport or even are like a little bit younger where you look at them and just like, you know, they're like a kid and it's like you want to like see them do well because you're like, oh, like you're very, you know, 
uh, you know, obviously it's not like a, a little brother thing, but it like kind of is in a way where you're just like, ah, I want to see this, this young and do well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, now he's, you know, I've, I like, I've seen him down here in Miami, like the times that he's come and, and shot for SBD. Um, no, I think that's just, that's really cool. There's a lot of people in our space that I, you know, I feel that way as well. Right. Like there's a lot of either coaches like that were so new back then and like no one really knew or, you know, either other athletes that have just somehow blossomed into what they are now. Very cool to see because we are getting older now. It's hard to, hard to say. But. Uh, dude, and it's it's so weird. And I'm sure you feel the same way, too, because like when we started mentally, we were all in. But like physically, we were young. And like I know for myself, being the the coach and the athlete early on, like I just always felt like the youngest person in the room in like a very like outcasted kind of way where I would be coaching, you know, Mason or Cronin or Daniela at nationals. And like, I'm 19 years old and you have like the whole TSA team and their polos or like, you know, Mike T is like this, you know, larger than life kind of guy. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm a fucking baby. And then now I'm an old man. Like I genuinely feel old now. And it's just so, it's so bizarre. Do you feel old because you go to the gym and you see like these 18 year old kids and they're like, Oh, like, you know, they're, they're wanting to tell you about their new, you know, new program or whatever else going on or how they figured out this or just their new experience with powerlifting. And it's very cool to see because they're like learning along that same path that, that we were at years ago. That's, that's how I feel it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not old in the, in the physical sense, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, not that I'm feeling any more, you know, beat up or broken or whatever, but it is, it is just that very, I guess like, uh, shifting of roles or passing the torch um where like on one hand like culturally there's a big difference right like we talked about earlier with just like what these young kids are are doing in the gym i feel like a fucking 50 year old man these young kids um <laughs> but no i mean a lot of people just kind of like deferring expertise to you it's like they come up to you and they want to talk to you about what they're doing or they have questions about what they're doing and it's like in a very guidance seeking kind of way where it's like, okay, now I'm like the sage old man in, in the sport or at the very least in this gym. So it's like, it's a very gratifying feeling because that's what, you know, we've, we've worked toward, right? Like this was the goal, but at the same time, it's like, damn, I'm, I'm really, I'm really there already. That's crazy. Do you, do you also feel it that like, Hey, you know, I'm getting into that range where like, I need to still try to expand my horizons and not to say, Hey, I, I know this and this is what works right? Like, especially with like programming and like coaching, you know, ideas. Yeah. Like maybe there is more stuff that I can like try out and figure out and maybe play with this because I think it's easy for us. We've seen what works. We've seen so many things that it's like, okay, this is tried and true. Yeah. And now we need to go like, okay, maybe there is something that these kids can offer or maybe that we can take up. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. And like, I, I often find myself, you know, when I'm, cause there are times where I'll see, you know, successful athletes working with a coach who's maybe doing something I disagree with, or they're just, you know, kind of doing things on their own or, you know, more recently, for example, I'll give you a very concrete example. Like I've had a lot of lifters recently where I've, my, the pendulum has swung in the other direction for me in terms of, uh, like bench specificity and bench frequency, where at a time that was like, you know, that was a direction we had to go in to kind of elevate 
everybody's bench pressed to the level that they're capable of, right? So like a few years ago, maybe two to three times a week, a week was like the average people would bench. And then we really started to ramp it up. And in conjunction with the frequency changes, there were also all these programming strategies that came into play to really optimize that high frequency structure. And that was like, for a while, it almost felt like, you know, the phrase where it's like, if all you have is a hammer, like everything looks like a nail. It's like, that was the solution. It's like, oh, your bench isn't moving. Like, let's just bench more. But in more recent times, I've had like some very stubborn clients and not stubborn mentally, but in terms of bench progress, like very stubborn to progress who don't, you know, have big arches. They're not benching max grip. And the programming implementations that I've made have gone back in the other direction of like incorporating more variation, reducing the frequency, uh, like changing the the pace of the of the block progression to not be as like just like this incremental kind of linear approach of you know progressing singles every week and whatever. So I found I find myself in a in a tricky position because on one hand it it feels intellectually unfulfilling or dishonest to feel like you have all the answers and there's always an opportunity to learn more. Um, and that's something I'll always try to question and kind of check myself whenever I feel mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm the man and I know this stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is, and I'm, and I'm working on some stuff for this. Um, there is no publicate, there are no publications. There's no formalized sort of content on modern powerlifting and how to progress powerlifting athletes to the level that us coaches have been able to. And that's a job that I'm trying to take on now of actually putting together uh, content libraries of this information because the people who hold all of that are coaches like us, right? It's like there's, you know, you, you could go on YouTube and you can watch like you know, some videos from Wilson or Steve or, you know, whomever, right. Where you're going to get these little kind of separated nuggets of, of knowledge. Um, but if I told you, oh, you know, find a, a textbook or a, or like a, you know, a, a video library or whatever you want to call it, there's no formal place that I could send anybody to when they ask me, where do I go to learn how to be the best powerlifting coach that I can possibly be? Like, the basics are there. There's, I can refer you to principles of strength training. I can refer you to the 3d muscle, you know, 3d, um, the muscle and strength pyramid. I can refer you to, um, you know, even some of like the juggernaut stuff for beginner stuff. And, you know, there's always good individual things you could take from YouTube, but in all honesty, like the knowledge is kind of held in the minds of a lot of the popular coaches right now, and nothing has been put to paper. And I feel like that's a job that some of us have to take on because there's going to come a point where, you know, none of us want to make YouTube videos anymore. Or don't have the time to make YouTube videos or, you know, there are young coaches who, you know, maybe are really only, and I see it, I see it when I, you know, I see some programs that some younger coaches write, or, you know, maybe I have an athlete come to me from a, you know, kind of popular, but younger coach. And you can tell from the program, it's like a very backwards, rationalized way of doing things based on what they've gotten from their coaches. Like I can look at an, a coach who is also an athlete. I can look at their programs that they write for people and I'm able to say like, oh yeah, you got that from your coach. Like I know, I know why you're writing what you're writing. And it's like, maybe it is a good solution for the problem that you're addressing, but like 
the the synthesis is not there. It's like very much like a deconstruction of what you've been shown. And like, while we have advanced upon and refined and come to our own conclusions, we still did have like the best that we could get in terms of the information that was available to us from prior generations, whether it was West Side, Conjugate, you know, guys like Zordos or Helms with, you know, or, you know, uh, Schoenfeld, like there needs to be, in my mind, that level of like information, publication, dissemination, whatever, for the next generation of coaches. Yeah, that would be, that would be good. That would what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, getting that out, it's it's the experience. It's the experience of either doing it with yourself, it's experience with doing it with people that are different from you, and then getting them from point A to point B, then how do you get from that point on? Yeah. Like actually developing once you're a inter once you're an intermediate or higher level lifter is much more different than just getting to that point. Yeah. And you could see it like, you know, with like a lot of the like evidence-based people, like the way that some of them approach things, it's just like, so by the book. And I've seen some like written out programs where I'm just like, it's like, you're looking at literature and it's just like, there is no literature for this. It's like, there is no, you know, longitudinal study that's been done on chance. There's no longitudinal study. Like the coaches are the ones who are doing those studies. It's just that they don't have it, you know, formalized anywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the struggle is like, you know, cause I'm, I'm trying to, work on this now and figure out how I'm going to, um, you know, package this up. The struggle is like the desire for information or the like sense of urgency around acquiring information, I feel like is not there. So like, we didn't talk about the seminar, you know, we, me, Michael and Aiden did the seminars down in Texas, um, little over a month ago. And it was an awesome experience. Like all of us had a fantastic time. Everyone who was there felt like they learned a lot. Um, but the turnout was nowhere near what we expected. Um, and the same, and I remember I reached out to Steve Denovi and I remember being like, Hey man, like, I just wanted to ask you some questions about, you know, what you guys are doing for promoting your seminars at the summit, because, you know, we felt like, while well, we did have to rush it a bit and we know what mistakes we made this time and what to improve upon in the future. Like we just didn't get the turnout we wanted. Like, how is it going for you? And Steve was like, honestly, we did not get the turnout we wanted either. Like we didn't even come close to it. And I feel like, and both of us agreed. It's like, when it comes to the the, like the intellectual stuff or the programming stuff, it's like either if you have a gym of a hundred people, like what, 10 of them maybe are coaches at best. It's like, you're already at a disadvantage there, but in years prior, you know, people would fly out to seminars because they feel like, Oh, this is going to be one of the very few opportunities that I have to learn this stuff or else I'm never going to learn it. Whereas now it's like, I think people just have this expectation, like, well, you know, I'll go because I'm interested or, you know, I mean, there are obviously people who really want to learn this stuff, but like some people would be like, eh, like it's, yeah, Sean will probably post a video about this later. Or like Steve will post a video about this later, or Joey will post a video about this later. It's like, it, it's, it's a new era of information, um, like the communication of information where you, you have to find different ways to engage people. And I feel like that's kind of the new the challenge here that I'm trying to, to navigate, I guess. 
Yeah, and I think probably making it like extremely convenient for people is the only way that like the turnout stuff is going to be very difficult. Like especially yeah. if there's no meat going on. Like I think the best is like where it's collegiate nationals. It's you know raw nationals, and it's yeah. like, a few days before it starts or something like that. Yeah, that might be good for the turnout, but otherwise it's tough. Yeah, I, even the the corrupted summit thing, it, it sucked because it's like even the the IPF lifters couldn't be there, <laughs> couldn't do it. Well, That's so I lovely. couldn't. I couldn't. Yeah. I know, I know you have some thoughts on that too. But, um, In terms of like that, that whole yeah. policy. I mean, I just yeah. think it's stupid. I, I don't even right. have any other words for it because it's like the, you know, Jesus is training with people who would fall under the category of being, you know, violating the, the WADA by association shit or, you know, like everybody is. It's like, if, if I'm, a, what, at what point is the line, drawn if i'm training with someone i could very easily be getting drugs from them in the gym it's like but now that it's a, a seminar or that it's a, an event it somehow changes things and that's a fair not fairly recent rule but it's like i i had the discussion with steve about it because he was saying the same things you're saying and i'm saying that i think i think it's dumb but unfortunately like when it is like marketed and it's like screamed out like this is what we're doing then I think it's going to be a problem. Otherwise, like, yeah, like it's very hard to police any of those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the good it is a good promotional thing that I'm going to take this time to say is that mm -hmm. one of the things that we did uh, figure out in terms of being more marketable for stuff like this is that, you know, we're so I'm going to be working with uh, with CT at uh, at Power Build. We're going to be hosting an event in January that will have seminars at it. Like it'll be a component of it, but we're trying to make like an actual event out of it. Um, we've already reached out to a few um, on both ends, on both of our sponsors um, to like set up booths there, do like uh, sponsored giveaways. So like we want to host like a, a series of like lifting events for just the general people in the area. Cause like that's, that's one of the things that we, you know, we kind of were like, okay, how can we, how can we, you know, appeal to the massive market of lifters that make up that KOP and, and Pennsylvania lifting community. Um, and then also have some sort of like informational component to it. So what we're looking to do is have these sponsors sponsor certain events where like, oh, if you win the bench your body weight thing for reps, it's like you'll get a, you know, a supplement package or you'll get an apparel package or you'll get whatever. Um we're talking about, you know, we don't know how many days it's going to be. It might be a one day, it might be a two day. Um, but I'm really, I'm really excited for that in January, just because that community is already huge. Um, you know, I'm sure we can get like a lot of the power lifters who kind of live in the area. You know, I know like Bob has taken trips to power build Delaney has Ashton has, um, you know, and make it like this meetup slash lifting event slash seminar slash just opportunity to buy stuff from these vendors. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, that community bit has always been, has always been huge to me. And like with the fact that, you know, with these seminars, it's like, I know that I'm going to attract the, the people who are really into the nitty gritty shit. Um, but just not like the community at large, like it's not going to be the same kind of event that I would imagine it to be. I feel like this is going to be a really cool opportunity. So it's like a type of summit similar thing where yeah. it'll be. Yeah, yeah. we're essentially that's what we're trying to do. And I think that, like I said, you know, with with KOP, it's a very diversified 
gym. Like you have people who are hardline bodybuilders. You have people who are hardline like crossfitters. You have people who are power builders. You have people who are power lifters. And like, we're going to try to cater to everybody. And the good thing is that they already have that event, you know, Friday night at the bar where basically anyone comes in, you know, as a guest for free between whatever hours. So it's like, it's it just, I feel like it's going to be a massive turnout. You know, I'm, I always, I'm always going to be confident in whatever it is that we're doing, but I feel like it's going to be a huge turnout, um, you know, irrespective of, of my name at all being attached to it. It's like, that's just like a little side thing. Like, I just want it to be appealing, you know, massively appealing just because it's going to be a, a good event more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Is it February when the end of February? Or? So we're thinking, we're thinking like end of January, probably. I know that CT has like, cause he hosts a ton of USPA meets there. Mm -hmm. So I think he has a lot going on for like the rest of the, the winter schedule. Um, and I think even in the beginning of January. So we already have like a, a group chat going with me, him and like the sponsors to try to, you know, figure out a time point figure out what we'll actually need and then we'll be able to decide like, okay, yeah, end of January is good or, or this is just going to be way too, you know, way too soon. Okay. But yeah, if you, if you can make it, bro, you should come. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, yeah, that's why I was asking. Cause I know uh, powerlifting American nationals is like the end of February. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, is it in Austin again? Is it just going to be in Austin every year? At least this year we'll see about next year's, but fair enough. Yeah. Fair yeah, enough. I mean, it's so new still. So, you know, there's not too much to expect, but I, I still see a big turnout this next year versus this last year. Oh, it's, it's definitely going to be switching. bigger. I've, yeah, I've seen it. I, I definitely think it's going to be bigger this year. I don't think, like, I still stand by my, like, pro USAPL uh, claim from, you know, a year ago or whatever it was, but there's definitely a lot of jumping ship. A lot of jumping ship. Do you, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of the media coverage? Do you think it's because of? No, I think I, from my perspective, I think it's purely just the IPF, like, uh, prestige as well as like the quality, the caliber of competition, I think is, is kind of starting to step up. Cause it's like when the USAPL gets kicked, you kind of have that like loyalty feeling where you're just like, well, we, and it is true that we do have a lot of the talent, right. But you kind of have this over-exaggerated mindset and I'm, I was guilty of it as well, where you're just like, oh, well, like the USA is better than everybody. Like there's no, now the IPF is going to be nothing without it. And it's like at, at, at face value, that's not even true, but it's like, as the year goes on and then you see worlds and you see all the international talent and then these new lifters are just genuinely coming up because you do have a lot of these developing programs all over the place i think that it draws more people because it's like okay if i can have very stiff competition i do have the prospects of sheffield and it is a world level meet and it's and it's you know one of those things where it's like it's not like powerlifting america has nobody in it right you already have people who are high level who are on that side so it's just easier to jump ship right it's like okay my I, I'm it's co-signed by chance or it's co-signed by Keiko or it's co-signed by Jesus. And now I'll have the opportunity to compete against other high level lifters. You know, I think, I think that you'll see a pretty big uh, exodus, not enough to really, you know, put a dent in the USAPL by any means, but yeah, I would imagine you'll probably see, I don't know. I, I'd imagine like a couple hundred people at PLA nationals. Yeah, I think so as well. I, I think the, the, 
the media coverage, social media stuff, there's still a good amount of USAPL lifters that I know still pay attention to the IPF side. They still pay attention to the French. They still pay attention to all the people in the UK and whether country where they see like, okay, these are real people that this is the only way I'd be able to compete against them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's unfortunate. And that's how I saw it is that, you know, us, we get to choose kind of whatever we want to do, but in a lot of other countries, they don't get to choose. Yeah. There is only the IPF. So yeah. although like USA is huge, USA is a big part of the world. It is still a very small and relatively speaking, you know, section of just powerlifting. That's it. Whereas like France and a lot of other countries, they are almost more focused on powerlifting in, in some of the other countries than us. Yeah. We are bodybuilding, all these other things. A lot of the other countries aren't. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, what was, oh, <laughs> we talked about this beforehand. I wanted to get your, your opinion on it now because you, one of your, one of your uh, secret exercises has been called into question by Mr. Denovi. Oh, secret exercise? Yeah. I don't know if this one's a secret. You talking Is... about just the leg extensions? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh no, I mean, so like on uh his story, he he someone it wasn't me, but someone else asked him about like leg extensions if they're worth doing or not or something like that. And uh my response to you was it's like I, I think for what Steve was saying is like in terms of like sheer uh translation over you you would see like okay like belt squat's definitely going to be up there or you know maybe you know leg press or something else um whereas leg extension it's so much isolated and it's something that is not very similar i mean it, it is similar in the fact that like it is quad dominated movement that's really it um the the reason why i think it's good is that you really get to just focus purely on your quads it doesn't take much time to do it um, there's no setup time. Uh, there's not a lot of ways that you can only get your quads hit like that without either, you know, inducing some back fatigue or anything else. Um, I think belt squats, whereas like you and I were, especially in like 2017, 2018, whatever it was back then, we're pushing belt squats hard um, and like put, putting it out there that they're very, very useful. They also are a little too similar to comp squats, I think, in a lot of ways where it is like a lot of loading, um, even if it's not on your back, it's still like can be very difficult on the knees. Yeah. And when you're using significant loading, that usually ends up being a problem. But if you don't use significant loading, then it ends up kind of not really doing what we need it to do. Yeah. Does that make sense? So it, it translates well, but then at that point, it's almost like doing comp squat volume to me. Um, so that's kind of where I'm getting into that. It's it's closer to that side than say something like leg extensions further on in the spectrum where this is something that, hey, it is very simple, easy to do. You can just keep it in your routine, add it three times a week. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I started doing them when you had brought them up. Um, I, I didn't notice any any crazy difference. I mean, I will say, I think from like a connective tissue standpoint that they're worth doing. Um, I also think that considering you can't really get any of your rectus femoris on a traditional squat, uh, you know, and you can, cause your hip is in a fixed position on a leg extension. I think that's worth it, you know, from like a, a health perspective. Cause like, you know, we, we say what you want about injury prevention. You can't really predict or prevent injury. It's true. But at the same time, it's like, if you're working every muscle possible through a full range of motion at all times, it's like, you're probably going to be better prepared than someone who's neglecting something. And, you know, 
like I said, I think, you know, I felt at least just like a, and again, this is such like an informal answer, but I, I felt like my knees maybe were a bit like springier for my squat days, like no change in force production or anything. But like, I just felt like my knees were in better shape doing leg extensions because like, if I'm thinking about my actual comp squat, it's like, am I really going through a lot of knee flexion? No. Am I really extending my knees under a ton of load? Like, no, not really. Like the torque about my knee at the top of a squat is not really that high. Whereas it's very high on a, on a leg extension. Um, so I would say probably from like some sort of therapeutic perspective, I got something out of it. I mean, from a, from a training standpoint for progression, I can't say that it did much. Um, but yeah, back to, back to your belt squat thing. Cause you actually, we were talking about this earlier where you mentioned how, you know, you do something long enough, it kind of loses its, 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 um, not appeal. It, it, yeah. And it's novelty. Um, belt squats blew up my squat at the end of 2018. Um, uh, and at the time I was squatting two days a week, uh, three days a week just wasn't working well for me. Like I remember very specifically, like when I worked with, when I worked with Joey, we started off three days a week. We crushed three days a week, like super, super high volume. We ended up at one point going to four days and that did nothing. We dropped back down to three days for a while. That didn't really work. We dropped to two days and a high bar day. And it was just like, I was stuck in this like low 600s area. And then we dropped to two days just straight up. And then my squat took off to like the 290 kilo range. And then it was like that fall into winter, we added the belt squats back in. And then that was just like game changer, like squat at 300 in, in the first you know couple months of, of having those in. And I still do them, but I definitely like it just, it's completely worn off. The not the novelty is not there. I, I would imagine, honestly, it, the the they're more of like a maintenance thing for me now than anything. Like I don't really think that they're driving much progress, if at all. And if anything, they kind of just have to stay in for for you know maintaining adaptation in periods of time where like the top end is not really being pushed as much, um, because like. You know, and this is kind of what we were saying before. It's like when it comes to evaluating your, like what your bottlenecks are at any given point in time, it's like, I can't, especially now, I, I can't, you know, be pushing super heavy sets of seven, eight, nine anymore. Like my, my back can't handle it. Um, I'm just not as good at reps anymore as I used to be for whatever reason, like just that ability to rep so much closer to my max on a squat versus what it was like, you know, in the 2018, 2019 timeframe, it's just not there. And that just kind of like fills that gap. And it's not one-to-one, right? It's like maybe, maybe the three sets of belt squat that I do twice a week are equivalent to like an extra, you know, one to two sets of leg stimulus that I'd be getting from adding squats in, but mm -hmm. adding those one to two sets at any appreciable intensity is just, it's just too much from a, from a general fatigue standpoint. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's fair. So, so that was the point of what I made with the, the leg extensions, um, kind of seeing Steve's response to it, um, which wasn't my question, by the way, maybe it was someone that I coach or somebody, but, um, I, I do think it has its value for that. You know, again, if you don't necessarily see it as super useful in that time, um, if belt squats or something work out well, then, you know, go for that. I definitely am not trying to push that as something that I think a lot of people should do. Just definitely think it has its use and it's very unique that there's not other too much options that get that specific. 
um, that doesn't tax you in other ways. Yeah. Um, one thing that I started doing that I just was thinking about randomly, um, actually, no, w what originally inspired this was, what's that, the cyclist name, Robert, whatever. Oh, my Forstemann or whatever his yeah. name is. He was yeah. an animal. And so animal, I, I saw some of his posts and I was like, damn, like, I want to fucking do some biking, like, push some biking hard just because. And they just motivated me to do it. So I started doing that, like, at the end of my sessions, like, just some, like, pushing maybe for, like, a minute or two, like, pretty hard. Um, just seeing what that does. And just after I do something like that, my legs feel like almost such that the blood flow is just so, you know, prevalent there that, like, any kind of, like, feeling of being beat up or anything feels a lot better in that that day um i don't know it just kind of motivated me to, to add that in real quick um uh, i don't think it's going to be that effective but maybe it's something worth trying i don't know dude seeing, seeing the dude's quads and like just it's like shit i guess it's like when people see bob do the weighted dips or whatever like all right <laughs> why, yeah. why not yeah exactly yeah. dude i your knee sleeves are never gonna fit if you keep that, bro, you're going to be wearing, you're going to be wearing double XLs for the rest of your life. If you keep doing that. It's hard. Cause my, my, you know, I have these longer legs, you have longer legs too, but like my, my legs are, are big for, for being longer limbed like that. And I, I don't know if um like the calves help either. My calves are a problem for, for the knee sleeves. I have to get people to, to help me pull off these sleeves. I feel like yeah. you'd be a good cyclist. Really? Yeah. I mean, just like, but I don't take gear. Well, that, uh, there's the there's the <laughs> elephant in the room for Robert for Forestman, Forestman, however you pronounce his name. It's funny because I don't even know how the algorithm showed him to me because it was in high school. I remember I first found his Instagram. He's probably one of the earliest people I actually ever followed on Instagram, which is a crazy thing to think about. I probably started following him in like 2013, maybe 2014. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you don't, if you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm sure if you just look up, cause I don't know how to spell his fucking last name, but if you were to Google like Robert cyclist, huge quads, like I'm sure it would come up granted he's using his, uh, his Flintstone gummies or that dare cell tech for those of you who remember the bodybuilding.com forum days, which chances are nobody listening to this is cause you're all younger than me, but yeah, he has absolutely humongous, humongous legs. Um, but I think, I think honestly, like from a recovery standpoint, it might do something for you. Like I I'm, and again, I'm not, uh, I'm not well-versed enough on like the science of it, but just like the metabolite accumulation of getting that much blood flow to these, you know, fatigued tissues, I'd imagine does something that you just like as a power lifter are not getting. Yeah. Right? I don't think, even I don't think are, it's going to hurt. Like, even all. if you are active, like walking, it's just not the same. You know, it's like the blood volume that you're getting is just not the same. So who knows? I mean, you might be, you might be good. Like it might, you know, it might help with like, because this is something I've noticed, like with my weight gain, for example, like I have not yet experienced any of the top end strength, anything yet. You know, all my best numbers that I've hit have still come from being sub 190 pounds, but my recovery day to day feels phenomenal. Like how sore I get is just, it's like, it's like non-existent. Like the days where I'd accidentally overshoot in the past and feel like, oh, like my back is smoked the next day or my legs are smoked. It's like that sensation has kind of either on some days just died altogether or in other ways is just minimized. And I'd imagine that's probably what you'd get out of the pushing the cycling like that. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I definitely just feel better day to day doing it, like yeah. walking up my stairs or down the stairs or just walking anywhere. My knees feel a little bit better. And I always have like knee, knee issues, uh, especially when I'm like pushing into heavier parts of a prep or something. Uh, usually gets a little bit, little bit demanding because of how like narrow I squat and, you know, long range of motion. Um, so it ends up being a little bit of an issue. So I just like, okay, let's try it. It's not going to hurt. Uh, I definitely think, you know, the, the, the bias or the placebo of seeing someone with giant, giant quads like that is it's like, damn, like, you know, there's no way like biking does that, but it definitely is not going to hurt. It definitely could be something there. I, I don't know what his like protocol or what he does. But I, I would love to see like what someone like that's training is because I, I know he squats and does like heavy squats. I think he uses like knee wraps and whatever, but um, he definitely has huge, ridiculous squats. Yeah, he'll do like high bar, like 260 kilos, super close stance, knee wraps, like half of the back of his foot is coming off the floor in the bottom of the squat, just like all quads. Like this dude probably has like a 300 pound RDL. Like just, <laughs> yeah. And do you remember seeing him in like the Olympics? And you're just like, what the fuck is this? Like, how do people like just have like quads like this that just for no fucking reason? Well, his body's not very developed. It's funny though because like I think I remember seeing a they were kind of like the camera was panning to like the competitive field, mm -hmm. and it's like all the other cyclists and then him, and it's like all right, like we know <laughs> we know who's uh who's running what and who's uh maybe a little bit more low key with their, with their dosages. Cause he's just, even in, even in, in sprint cycling, he just is a mammoth compared to everybody else. Yeah. I'm trying to get <laughs> legs like that, man. When I get, when I get to 200, I'll have legs like that. <laughs> but that's the thing, like with powerlifting, I've been someone that's been uh, like, maybe not criticized, but people look and are like, Oh, that's weird that Chance does that, or weird that Chance says this, or weird that he, he does things. And a lot of things that I say or do are like a little bit try to be on the more creative side of like trying to get something new or figure something else out. Yeah. Um, and I look to things like that and I try to identify these like missing pieces that maybe we can take from this and try to put it into powerlifting somehow. Yeah. And I think it's important because like, and kind of some of the things I wanted to ask you is like we've, we've been getting to this point now where powerlifting the meta of powerlifting what we're actually doing has increased to doing this it's very much daily insulated periodization type setup with some you know rar or rp based training a lot of the the same things that we see no matter who you're working with whatever coach whatever you're doing now um they aren't you're tending to be around the same things we're getting into the same thing so okay what can we do to get beyond this point it's going to have to be something a little bit different a little bit more creative yeah yeah. I mean, I'm, I guess, you know, I know, I know the question you're intending to ask here. And I want to first say like, I very much have always appreciated and respected the, like the willingness to do what you're doing, like in terms of like being creative and trying to find these new sort of solutions or aids, whatever you want to call them. Because like I said earlier, the, the golden age of powerlifting from like a programming standpoint is now. And I hope that it would continue to evolve, but all of the information is is held in the hands of a lot of us, right? And it's and it's a weird feeling to have knowing that like everything, all the, all the answers, at least as we know them now, are kind of in our hands, which is a great thing. But at the same time, that responsibility falls on us to be 
like very empirical and be scientific in the purest sense, not scientific in the, you know, did you get your Pfizer vaccine sense? Like, you know, in like actually exploring, right? Like trial and error and trying to figure out what we can incorporate, you know, in the future that might be successful. Cause like, you know, we look back at, at what like Louis Simmons did at, at West side. And we're just like, well, that's fucking stupid. Right. But like the basis for DUP comes from the conjugate method, right? It's like at some point Louis decided, Hey, there are different qualities that are going to contribute to improving my top end strength. It is having muscle. It is being able to exert myself max effort, and it is being able to increase the rate of force production. And if you look at the traditional for, for people, maybe who haven't like appreciated the, the history of how this programming has evolved. If you look at like a very traditional layout for like what DUP is, the structure was like hypertrophy day, like power day, and then like a strength day. And it's very similar in structure to what that old West side model of things was. And back then with no, with like being prior to the technological age, not really having anything sort of established, no scientific literature surrounding strength training, no culture of just deferring to, you know, a peer reviewed study or a meta analysis, you deferred to who was the experts at the time. It's like, he just tried shit. Right. And it's like, even though we look back at it and we see the limitations, we see the flaws, there's a lot of stuff that we don't do. He still did elevate the competitive pool and what was possible within powerlifting at that point in time to its highest level. So at, in the, in the same way, like you have to be willing to move the needle forward instead of saying, well, like this is what's established. This is what's known. So I'm going to abide by this. Yeah. It, uh, that's a good point. You mentioned It's like, we're kind of full circle here almost the, in, you know, one of the seminars I did in, in Dubai, um, I actually talked about that. It's like, we have like, you know, different models for periodization. And a lot of times it takes, you know, specific, you know, parts of different models and you kind of piece it together and now you have X, right? Where a lot of it, like even before, you know, like conjugate in a sense is like getting closer to what this is now, where there's a lot of things that we're taking in that sphere of the speed, power type days or whatever you want to call it, right? And there's a lot of those principles that have actually showed up here. Um, not necessarily saying that this is what it, what it is, but there's a lot of the same kind of values there actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what programming will look like in the next five to 10. You know, I, I personally don't like using, uh, these, but like the velocity trackers, I'm curious. Cause like, here's one of the things that I've talked about, and this is like probably one of my most, I guess, passionate things to talk about when it comes to programming is kind of the concept of, of doing what makes you stronger and how the textbook definitions of what improved top end strength don't always manifest themselves from lifter to lifter, meaning that we see lifters sometimes perform at very low average intensities or in very high rep ranges. And the consequence is an increased top end strength. Whereas if they do what is the textbook definition of doing things to recruit the highest number of high threshold motor units and push proximity to failure, some of those lifters like fail, right? Like they, they fall off, right? And I think that there are a lot of like individual characteristics that I can point to, to maybe have a good idea of whether or not a lifter will fall into that category. And then of course you have the actual data of coaching a lifter and being able to confirm like, yes, this is true or, or no, this is not true, but there's no like hard sort of formalized way to characterize this. And I wonder if with like 
velocity trackers, for example, like if rate of velocity loss or, or, you know, um, just discrepancies in velocities at different RPEs or whatever it is, if you can use that information to determine stuff like that, where you're able to, you know, figure out what intensities are going to be better for a certain lifter, what rep ranges are going to be better for certain lifters. Cause you can form, right? Like RPE, when you really, you know, break it down to the fundamental <clears throat> level is like, how far are you away from velocity being zero? right? It's like when you fail, that's when you go from moving in a positive velocity to zero to a negative, right? So it's like at its at its core, that's what RP is measuring. And everybody would have a corresponding, you know, velocity to RP chart that is going to vary from person to person. And, and I think that a lot of people who maybe, you know, lean into training with these things, maybe are, you know, what's the phrase? It's your, uh, you know, you're missing the forest for the trees or they're just focusing on the little things and and not really the big picture. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I wonder if there's a lot of like on a macro level characterizations that we can, we can extract from a tool like that, that will allow us to make, you know, just better coaching decisions faster. Right. Cause I feel like that's, you know, <clears throat> among good coaches, right. It's like our fundamentals aren't too different. You know, there are like different ways that we do things to a degree stylistically. You know, if you go across all the people who are like well-respected as like, you know, top coaches. But I think that the thing that usually separates like good coaches from great coaches is like, how quickly can you converge upon the winning formula? You know, it's like, and that was one of the things I talked about in my seminar when we were talking about the intro block. It's like, this is not the time to like, quote unquote, build volume or like build your work capacity. It's like, this is the time to figure out fundamentally what structure works well for a lifter. Because if you have that understanding at that fundamental level, that's the basis upon which you build all future training blocks. That's the basis upon which you refine for the future. Cause you know, your first block working with someone, even if it's wildly successful, is not going to look like what their training does years down the road. But until you have that base level understanding you're not going to be able to make like the best decisions for them in the future. Cause let's talk about the opposite situation, right? Maybe we do take like a, a high variability approach or a high volume approach. And, you know, maybe it's successful for the time being, maybe it's unsuccessful. Regardless, you make your way down the road far enough where it hits a wall and it's no longer successful. You don't have any directionality whatsoever. You don't know where to go. You won't know if the frequency needs to be a tuned up. You don't know if it needs to be tuned down. You never got an idea of whether or not someone responded really well to a certain rep range or really poorly, or maybe they need higher average intensities versus peak. Like there's just so much that you don't learn along that path. So I'd be curious to see what the next, because I feel like that's been the big recent wave. You know, I, I think powerlifting coaching has gotten away from this, like for most coaches, I would say like this over planning kind of structure that used to be very popular where it's like very delineated phases of training. And you would be like, well, we're going to work on this for this period of time. And then we're going to work on this. And then we're going to work on this. And now it's like, you're just refining upon the structure that allows you to push the top end in a sustainable fashion. And if you look at all the high level lifters, like their preps kind of look like just slightly better versions of prior preps, their off seasons, if they had momentum look like the bulk of what they were doing to push during prep, but 
there's just like a step down in some area to focus on something else, but there's not these harsh changes. So from like a methodology standpoint, I feel like that's been the big shift in the past like 10 years. And you'd be foolish to think that's where it's going to end. So I I don't know what the next shift is going to be, but I'm curious to see what it is. Do you think that it's going to take, you know, a lot of extra studies to be done on some of this? Or do you think it's just going to be a collective of us saying like, hey, this is what we tried and randomly we figured out this works and wow, okay, you know, you got this from other coach. Let's try this. And it's that. Because I, I, I see me personally, what I look to, like, as of different changes to, like, my overall structure, it's, like, reading some other, like, study. Or it is reading, you know, some other, like, graphic maybe that's put up that explains this, oh, okay, maybe that's worth trying. Or maybe this is something I can change. But it, it's usually not just specifically from another coach, unless it's, like, some very specific accessor work that's easy to just add in. Yeah. So, okay, maybe that's something. You know, I, I would say, and I, I'm the, the cop-out answer is that it's going to be a mixture of both. What I will say, though, is that I've been very unimpressed by like powerlifting-specific studies. You know, like when people try to get these cohorts together where they're having, you know, a group of like minimally trained men do like barbell back squats for, you know, a 10-week period. And then the other group trains it. Like a lot of it converges upon the like, thanks. Like we already knew this through common practice, right? It's like, there's nothing that comes out of it. That's very groundbreaking either one, because you know, the, the institutions or the individuals in these labs that are running it just maybe aren't the most, you know, they're not the pinnacle of science. And then the people that you can actually like recruit for wanting to take part in any of this are probably not far along in, 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 in their strength training journey that they're the results are really indicative for, for people like us. The most that I've gotten out of studies have been like just very like physiological, um, you know, biochemical type stuff. Like, I don't know if you follow Chris Beardsley. Um, I see posts from him. Yeah. So Chris, Chris Beardsley, if you guys are listening and don't, and don't follow him, I would definitely recommend it. If you're looking to like get a more um, in-depth sort of scientific education and he's kind of, he's a little convoluted in how he explains things in his, uh, in his summaries, but Um, I feel like I've learned more in the sense of like discovering something that's completely new, right? Like if you think about all the things that you know, and you view them as like these individual paths and you like have different things you can see along the path, Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that we learn through coaching experience, it just kind of lengthens that path, right? It's like, oh, like going down this train of thought, this is the enhancement, right? Like, it's like, okay, now we have more road in front of us and, and, and it, it enhances our understanding of something we've already explored very deeply, but I've seen things from, from Chris, I've seen stuff from, from Menno Henselman's just the, they'll repost studies that are just, you know, not focused at all on powerlifting, but it like opens up a new Avenue entirely where I'm just like, Oh, like I legitimately have never thought about that. I've never even, you know, considered that. And the great thing that happens is that if you have a good brain in your head, you can take that road that is seemingly unconnected and it's its own thing and then connect it to one of the already existing ones that you have. Right. And like that connecting of the dots is I think how we, how we move forward in whatever the next five to 10 years changes that, that programming takes on. 
Yeah, I mean, I, the reason why I said more on that side of like seeing studies is because I have no idea what they could do a study for that maybe that is something that I wasn't even thinking about that potentially could be something that I add. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I think it's more kind of like easier for me to foresee what it would be from another coaching, you know, avenue that it would yeah. be on that path where I think, okay, maybe I could have already figured that out. Yeah. Uh, the, the other study stuff, it, it's going to be difficult because yeah, most of the time it's studies that show like elderly and how they respond to, you know, either training and or lack thereof training with whatever it is, or maybe it's an athlete, but they're an athlete that's only really started lifting heavy for two years or something, or it's like, okay, well, they're at like the way they adapt to new training stimulus is completely different from how someone that's very much in this for 10 years is going to respond to it. You know, you have, a lot of it does not translate well. So it is yeah. like, okay, piecing this together, maybe, and this will work. Um, but otherwise it's very difficult. Yeah. And yeah, no, I feel you on that. Yeah. Um, are we almost wrapping it up? I think so, man. I think so. Um, I guess like the one thing that we didn't talk about, which is at this point, I think everybody kind of knows, um, but I am moving up a weight class this year. Yeah. Um, so my decision to move up the weight class was primarily driven by the fact that I have been the same body weight since I was around 17 years old, mm -hmm. um, which now is, you know, coming up on, on 10 years of my life, which is crazy. Um, I have no problem staying at 82 and a half. And I think my big kind of struggle that I grappled with is like, fuck, like I feel strong enough to win this weight class and I've just executed very poorly. And that's been the thing that's held me back. And for that reason, I want to stay 82. Mm -hmm. And along that internal conflict with, you know, being like, well, I want to move up. I want to move up. I think the thing that kind of put me over the edge and said, okay, like I feel comfortable in doing this is that there is such good competition in 90, you know, specifically in, in being able to compete against Petrie that, you know, and, and, and I, I guess I get additional confidence from having seen, you know, people who have moved up you know, not like the traditional, just like young power lifter, who's just gaining weight to gain weight. But, you know, I think of guys like you, I think of people like, uh, Charlie Dixon, for example, people who like are muscularly like pretty mature and have stayed at a weight class for a period of time are at like a certain level of leanness and then they move up and then they kind of blow up. Right. I don't, I don't expect it to be an instant process. And we've talked about on previous podcasts, why maybe some people, overestimate that possibility or, you know, maybe, uh, are too quick with their pace and then they end up running into injuries or whatever it is. Um, but I think I, I feel very confident in that potential outcome, um, in terms of strength gain. And then I'd be competing against someone who like relatively, like if you go by dots or Wilkes or whatever score has put up a more impressive performance. Right. So like, <laughs> I remember there were people who were like, Oh, like you're running away. You know, you don't want to keep competing in 82. It's like, bro, the reason I didn't move up sooner is because I really fucking want to compete 82. Like I still do. And you know, I, I, I <laughs> it's, it's people who never know me. Cause like, I think the ones who do know me know that I'm like psychotic about competition, psychotic about like wanting to struggle. Like I, I like doing the hard shit. Um, so that was such a huge internal conflict. Um, but I guess the way that I see it, like I said, is like, 
I genuinely want to grow because I feel like I've, I've held myself down at this weight class for so long. Um, and I do think that just like from a, from a placing standpoint, I'd be in the same spot that I was in at 82 from like a relative standpoint across the entire competitive pool of male power lifters. I think I could put myself in a position to be better overall. Um, and honestly, you know, like, you know, people, people are not as transparent with their, their body weight as, as I am, I would say, cause I keep people on top of like my food and my diet and all this sort of stuff. But like, there are plenty of people who don't make a declaration of moving up, get up to, you know, 200 pounds in the off season, and then they end up dieting back down. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if I ever get to a point where like I'm 200 and, you know, prep is coming up and I'm just not where I want to be. It's like, I could very easily, especially with my, I guess, nutritional prowess, like diet back down worst case scenario, I'd be where I would have been anyway. You know, it's like, had I just stayed 82 and best case scenario, you know, I get an extra, you know, two and a half kilos or something on, on one of the lifts that I otherwise would not have gotten. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's all I have to say about that. But I figured it was worth mentioning just because I've had so many like people during Q and A's and whatever, be like, Oh, like what, what, what prompted this decision? Like, mm -hmm. you know, speculating and on that sort of stuff. So I'm can, looking forward to it though. Can I play devil's advocate here? Cause I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about this with you, yeah. but we didn't really get to it. And so I was like, Oh, no problem. But after you mentioned it and you kind of explained, um, because I know you have a very uh, you have a very cultish fan base, right? Yeah, they love they love to see the battle. They love to see the eighty two and a half head to head. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that that miss out on that um, that are probably going to have their own views. And I'm sure you've already heard probably from people that you don't care about or people that you don't really care about what their opinion is or anything of you moving up or not. Um, and have told you like, oh, Sean, I want you to to stay eighty two and a half, or no, Sean, like you're making the right decision at ninety or whatever it is. Um, and you know, just, so I communicate this to you. Cause I think you, I think you still value my opinion on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, I know that like, I, I would agree with you, right? Like you have been 82 and a half for X amount of years, you know, as an adult, like you've been that weight forever. Yep. Um, you, you kind of made the point of saying like, Hey, you know, some people get up to like 200 pounds and they still compete, you know, at like 82 and a half. Um, and I know that I already knew that years ago, people lie about their, their weight or, or pretend like they're not, you know, way heavier than they are. Yep. Um, and then drop down and compete. Um, and I think more of the whole points that you're mentioning, I still think you can do, and you can have both where you can do all the things that you're talking about where you're saying like, Hey, yeah, like I want to build, I want to grow, uh, and still compete at 82 and a half. And I think for what I've seen from you, I know that like eating has been like very difficult to push, like maybe not very difficult, but eat the way you want to eat and gain significant amount of weight. Um, what are you right now? Like 196? 190. 194? 190. Uh, so <clears throat> I would say my, my like body weight wants to settle at like 194 and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, I wasn't gaining anything despite how high my calories were. And then last week I had a big spurt where I had a couple morning weigh-ins at like 197, almost 198. Mm -hmm. Didn't change anything nutritionally. And then it just kind of came back down to the 194 to 195 range, which is really and, not far above where I've sat in the past. Right. So that's kind of where I'm getting to where 
you know, you were still look lean. You don't look like, you know, like super, super shredded where you can't lose weight, um, where you could water manipulate down or yep. water cut to make 82 and a half. Do you actually see yourself potentially doing that? Is that an actual option for like next year's nationals? Yeah. So it definitely is. And I haven't spoken about this on social media at all, but I had a conversation with Steve and I told him because he originally was on the fence and not when I brought it up in, in its finality, but way back when I first introduced this concept to him, he was on the fence because obviously he wanted to see me win the 82s, right? Mm -hmm. um, eventually, I brought it up enough times where his perspective, which had always been a positive perspective of this, was that you know he felt it was a good opportunity for me to actually grow and all the things that I mentioned. Um, and the thing that put him over the edge was that, Hey, like this has clearly been such a persistent thought in your mind that I know that you're willing to commit to it. And the conversation that we had was like, we're going to push to get to, you know, around like 200 pounds by the new year. After spending months at that body weight is probably where most people start to actually see the benefits of being a new weight, right? It's like the initial gain for some people, like in my case, might increase recoverability to a degree. Like I've said, I just feel fresher, even if sleep is not on par, for example. But I think it's going to take actually being at or above the weight class for a little bit for the strength gains to actually do what hopefully they can do. Mm -hmm. And the the terms that we came up with were like, there's no there's no inner out along this path. So he was like, I can't I can't have you gaining weight and then coming back down and then gaining weight and then coming back down or like not committing to filling out the class, which wholeheartedly agreed with. But I think that if we get to the point of meat prep starting, you know, and it's like we're in June or we're in July and we're just evaluating like, okay, like, am I in a position where am I in the position that I thought I would be in as a 90? If so, proceed. If not, then the diet can be made back down. And maybe we do come out of it with better gains than, you know, we would have had we just stayed in the upper 180s. And yeah, yeah. I think that's a possibility. And like, you know, with like, with Russ, for example, you know, because a lot of people, you know, we're obviously alluding to him in, in some parts of our conversation here. It's like, you know, people see the, you know, eight plate squats or the 460 benches or whatever in the off season. And it's like, that is a result of taking that time to build back up and spend this growing period. Like, you know, he is 200 pounds in the off season, right? And it's like, maybe that is a successful strategy that I have not yet explored. And maybe just other lifters aren't exploring where it's like, if I'm taking 10 steps forward and then I lose and I, you know, backtrack nine steps during the diet, it's like, I'm still one ahead of maybe where I would have been. And I think that given how meticulous I am with my diet, I definitely see that as a viable course of action. Um, you know, it's, I'm committed to the task in front of me, but I'd be, I guess, foolish to say that I'm like mentally like checked out of the 82s, you know, cause like I said, I know where my strength was during nationals prep. Like I know that I'm capable of all those numbers at a very low body weight. So it's like, can it be done? You know, absolutely. And I, and I kind of, I know that this was going to be your, I guess, uh, 
I don't think I even I even got to it yet. I'm still just curious on your thoughts about it, but I haven't even made my my point yet. Okay, well, I'll I'll let you speak in in a second yeah. because the last yeah. thing I was going to say was that you know, a conversation that you and I have had privately as well is like you don't want to like give up on the weight class when there's still progress to be made in the sense of like being a programmer and really fine tuning stuff because then you never converge upon the that quote unquote best formula. Cause yeah. when you go up, you could be still doing stuff in the subpar way and seeing progress where, and not to say that what we're doing is subpar, but like, you're going to get better. You know, if you're in a surplus, you're recovering adequately. And like, maybe that could have been achieved without having to gain the weight. Mm -hmm. Okay. So th like the next thing I was, I was going to say is that you you're at a range, like your body weight range, where I think, you know, I don't know the most you've ever cut to make 82 and a half. It's from 87. Okay. From 87-ish. Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're still, to me, in my head, you're, you're still very well within water cut range. Um, mm -hmm. Like just actually doing a water cut, gut cut manipulation, actual, like the end cut, um, where I don't think it would really affect performance that much, um, if at all, honestly. I mean, it just depends on how you personally respond but um i think you can get all these benefits that you're talking about and stay six months you know at this body weight and then for the last like two months or whatever it is maybe just month to get a pound down and then water cut um and maybe you could see how that goes because you haven't gotten to this point yet in your career where you are this high level of a lifter with all this experience and then now you can finalize the last little bit uh, and I, again, I don't think that percentage drop off is too much, but, but more of like the devil's advocate side, even ab above this is I always look at this, like from my perspective as like, you were number one, two, right? Like good, good or bad day. You could be that lifter, right? Like now um, you like have a huge, like hurdles to overcome at 90. Like it's not just Petri. I mean, there's other nineties that are tough, right? Like, yeah. Um, that you would have to have a really good day. And I think, Ultimately, like, unless you're saying that you're committing to something for like five years, like, I don't think that most people ever get to that maxed out point in their career at that weight class, unless they do it for at least five years. Mm -hmm. It's like, you've got to be a filled out 90 for five years in order to reap the benefits of that, where it's like, yeah, even this first year, even up to nationals this next year at 90, will you really be a full 90? You're not really like a full 90 is 205 yeah like it's is is that's that level and at that point that's where like you're getting all the extra neural adaptations at that heavier body weight um but it's going to take another five years maybe for from that point so yep. that is such a, a time commitment thing that i'm like okay like uh, you know i know you don't want to power lift when you're 40 years old i mean obviously you're not that old yet but you're getting to that point <laughs> come on man years. i'm calling myself old you're putting me five <laughs> years you, from 40 not, yeah not that you're getting to that point yet but it is another commitment that it's like, mm -hmm. okay, like you would have to say that I am committed to this weight class at that point. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with is like that in between stage that you're kind of getting to where some people, I, I think it's the worst thing is like the worst thing that can happen. You go up a weight class and then you get really hurt and now you're fat and hurt. Yep. And instead of being like very competitive at number one, even if you weren't, or at one weight class, even if you weren't like maxed out, you've already maxed out the 82 and a half, or you're getting to that 97% threshold ish. Right? Yeah. 
So that's where it's like, okay, um, that risk. And I, you know, I kind of don't want to make or point names out, but I, I see a lot of people that did that, that jump up to the next weight class as an advanced level lifter. And a lot of those people, um, like you use me as an example, but I don't think I'm an example. Like, I think a lot of examples are like other athletes that were already top of the class and then they move up. Yeah. Those are the ones that I'm talking about where a lot of times those people get hurt and mm. a lot of times they have some issues come up and now they're fat and hurt. And that's a horrible position again to, to see that. I don't want to see you in that yeah. see you number one or two at whatever weight class it is, but it's gotta be the specific one that you commit to. Yeah. Um, where like, I think now, especially if with the dieting stuff, like you could really like eat like a slob and it probably would be beneficial a little bit. Obviously, I know you don't want to gain fat. I know you don't want to do that, but I think that's almost part of the territory because we talked about this in like the, the preview one, or at least the, the first discussions of this 90 kilo journey for you, where, you know, like gaining that fat um, is almost necessary, I think, it, it, at, at some point, right? Like you can recomp over the next X years and that I think is what you'll see a lot more of the gains from. Um, but you know, it, it's your journey. I want you to, to be as strong as you possibly can at whatever weight class you are. Yeah. I think it's going to be the one with the most muscle, the leanest, but I think one is now one is in five years. That's a very, I very much appreciate that perspective. And I think it's definitely a very, like a very valid and very compelling one. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you are right in many ways where on one hand, I don't think that I'm grossly like underestimating the time scale, but at the same time, there's a lot of people you can point to where I am underestimating the time scale. Um so yeah, I mean I definitely for me it was like six, seven. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, one of the things that I I, you know, lean on is that there are people who in the timescale I'm looking to move along successfully who have jumped up in that way. And it's, it's easy to like have that kind of bias where you're like, all right, like here's the examples of the good. And then, you know, kind of not necessarily discredit, but think like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to fall into that category of, of the good responses. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I think more than anything, I'm committed to the weight game. You know, I'm committed to being 90 kilos. Um, and I very much do like the idea of, of going up the weight class. I think it's nice to, um, you know, have like a, a new challenge in that way of, of getting the opportunity to compete against guys like Petrie and Borkert and Jamar and whomever. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, like you are absolutely right. Like I could spend significant time at 90 kilos, even 91 kilos, you know, and diet back down while not having to really crush myself it's really just returning to a maintenance intake that was very comfortable in the first place see where the weight goes and then and then cut from there it's like I, I absolutely see that as a viable option which is why i said like we made a commitment of we're gonna spend this time gaining the weight this is the body weight we're gonna get up to this is how quickly we want to do it this is how long we want to spend there and then when that like critical period comes of like evaluating where do we go we give ourselves enough time to make the right decision mm -hmm. So yeah, I, guess I think even it. now, like you can decide whatever you want to do. And you, I think either way you can win just what you value. Yep. Yeah. No, for sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I think the, the, the position I have is as your friend that wants to see you 
be the fucking best at what you decide to do. But I don't yeah. want to see you go into irrelevancy at a weight class unless you decide that, hey, I'm I'm going to eat that hit for a little bit. And yeah. obviously you're not irrelevant even if you like don't beat Petru, you don't beat X person. But it is that saying that, hey, like you've got to suffer a little bit at this weight class. Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you, dude. Appreciate you. You're never you're you're a no bullshit person, as everyone listening knows. So those are that's the company I like to keep. All right, man. I, and this is yeah, the, the the food thing, because I think the do you ever plan on eating like dirty at all? Nope. Nope. From a health perspective, I've committed to this. And it's not even something that I feel like I'm uh losing out on anything, like from an enjoyment standpoint. I think the biggest obstacle, honestly, is just that my time management skills are not there. Um, you know, like I could very easily finish my day of eating with no problem. It's just that there are many days where I go a very long period of time without eating, like including today. Um, so I just get stuck eating a lot in a very short window. And when you're bulking, that's not easy to do. But I'm surprised you don't have like a meal prep service. No, I mean, the reason I don't is because of, you know, wanting to avoid like, people cooking with seed oils or, you know, whatever it is I can't eat. And like a thing with a lot of veg with a, a lot of meal prep services is like, you'll get um, like different grains or like vegetables. Like my digestive system is, I can't do like green vegetables. I can't do peppers. I can't do tomato. Like there's just so many different things that since becoming very restrictive and they, they gave me issues in the past, but like because I was just eating everything, my, my perception of what was going on was dulled. Now that my diet has become as restrictive as it is, my sensitivity to any like uh, divergence from the diet is like, it's, it's really like, I'll have a lot of pain too. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I enjoy cooking. That's the thing. It's like, I'd rather make my food than do meal prep. Okay. That's yeah. Good. I just know with eating more than what you already doing, and your meals already look very elaborate and like, I don't know how long it takes you to do it, but I'm like, that's actually a big time commitment. That you have yeah. To yeah. No, it is. It is. And it's like, it's one of the time commitments. I'm just like, I'm willing to to do this as like much, you know, if I'm cooking for 20, 30 minutes that it's like, you know, this is a time sink at the same time. It's just something I enjoy doing where I'm like, all right, like, Fair. yeah. Cool. Well, I think it's a good uh, place to stop. Yeah, good point to stop me being an old lady who likes grocery shopping and cooking. Um, but yeah, man, thank you for this. This is episode 12 of the High Bar Podcast. Um, this should be up, what what day is it right now? So it's the 11th, we'll probably have it up, what, tomorrow or the next day? Beautiful. All right, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we'll try to get back on here pretty soon. Um, one of the things that I'll probably do is I'll probably get on here solo on some occasions to kind of fill in the gaps between any sort of logistical issues and getting multiple people on. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to episode 12 of the High Bar Podcast. We'll see you in the next one. Take care.